Hello and welcome Pacers fans into the mid-March edition of the Sideline Ridge alongside Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. You regularly reference around this time of the year on the podcast. This is one of your favorite times of the year. You've got the NBA season in the last few weeks as we are recording this on a Wednesday. March Madness tips off on Thursday. Tomorrow, uh, the high school boys basketball tournament is uh, closing in on Gainbridge Fieldhouse. We'll pour one out for your Prue Tigers, although <laughs> a great run for them and uh, lots of intrigue, I think, here as we hit the podcast in mid-March. And the Pacers are in the middle of a three-game road trip, and I traveled home just to be able to podcast with you in person in our glamorous studios at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. That was very nice of you. The team stayed and you just said, no, I'm, I'm going to come back. No. Not entirely true, yeah. The team did come back. I was wondering about But it that. wasn't unusual to, maybe, I don't know if it was a decision. I think the decision was made at the start of the season. Uh, there was a similar opportunity a little over a week ago when the Pacers were in San Antonio, if you'll remember, playing on a Thursday night, part of an already long road trip, and then they did not play until a Sunday afternoon in Chicago, and I can't with 100% certainty say what went into the decision. But that you're on the road at that point. You go straight from San Antonio on to Chicago, and you have a couple of days there. In this situation, you had the two-game series in Detroit where you would you left on Friday, played Saturday, off day Sunday, played Monday. You could have gone to Milwaukee and had an extra just day to kill on the road in Milwaukee, but you chose to go home. Very short flight. I was probably – home and in my bed by 1.30, so not too bad uh, with an Eastern Conference or Eastern Time Zone game, even though you lost an hour during that weekend. Um, and I think it was good for me personally, and that's all I can speak to, to have a, a day at home off on Tuesday and then now uh, podcasting with you and getting ready to go to practice before then getting on, on the road again to the airplane, which that's the most unusual thing is to come home not see the team play at home and then turn around and get on the road again and I think maybe part of that as well is knowing what's ahead for this team next week with another long road trip the last real long road trip that this team will have I think you'd take advantage of any opportunity you could have to have some home time and so that's what they did and uh it we're less than a month left in the season at this point um it was 12 games in or four, 12 games in 28 days, I think, is what I said before Monday's game against the Pistons, and now just 11? Yeah. Or am I – no, it was 14 and 28, now, now 13. Now you're down to 13. Yeah. And you were in a stretch – where well, I thought you were going with this. You were in a stretch of 11 of 14 on the road, which you are now six of the 11 through – uh, in two of those home games through. So that would be uh, five of the next six on the road. I think that's correct. So yep. once you get out of that, uh, the road stretch is pretty much over. You have a couple of one-offs, I think, uh, for the final stretch of schedule, but it is home-heavy to close things out. This is a – we haven't done uh, as many of these as we normally do during the season, but a mailbag edition of the Sideline Guys powered by Gainbridge. Uh, before we get into the questions, uh, I know more questions than answers here on these topics, but in terms of health, in terms of availability for Thursday for the upcoming weekend, we saw a pretty unique couple of games in Detroit where uh, six of the top seven combined scores for the Pacers and the Pistons. So if you just took both rosters and listed them one through however many based on points per game, uh, six of the top seven of those guys were out. And Buddy Heald, who played in both of the games, was questionable uh, and maybe not totally 100% for the one on Monday. The Pacers split the pair. Benedict Matherin went out with an injury just before 
the Detroit series, and I, I don't think there has been any sort of concrete timetable given on him. Tough question here to toss your way. Any expectation, though, uh, for player availability as we hit the later part of the week and into the weekend? As you set that question up, I feverishly uh, went to uh, the media site for NBA.com to check any injury reports and 11.30 a.m. a day before a game, usually no reports, and there are none at this point. Uh, it did seem that Rick Carlisle was positive about the players that were unavailable for the weekend, but traveling to Detroit with no expectation that Benedict Matherin will be back um, anytime this week. So other than that, I it's hard to say. It seemed like they approached that two-game series as two games together as dual purpose. Guys that had some nagging injuries that were dinged up, they were going to be out. Rick Carlisle, even to, right after the game on Saturday, had the unusual statement in his post-game press conference declaring that T.J. McConnell, Tyrese Halliburton, and Miles Turner, they were out Saturday and they will not play on Monday. And again, he mentioned it before the game. T.J. McConnell, he's always got something going on. He's been battling um, back soreness. And I watched with my own eyes against the Rockets him favoring that a little bit during that game. Same with Tyrese Halliburton. When he went down just at the end of regulation, and as Ricardo mentioned, when no foul was called, he was favoring that knee. He was moving it up and down, and the severity of it, I, I don't think it's you know significant, but enough that, hey, it's good to take the weekend off. And then with that, you allowed a lot of things to happen. You allowed Andrew Nemhard to have two full games as the primary point guard something that while he's had so much experience this season most of it as Rick Carlisle mentioned in a hybrid guard type of role and it's just completely different when you are the person that is in charge of the game you could even say a point guard has some responsibilities being being in charge on both ends and then the other aspect without Miles Turner you saw Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson go into both games knowing a clearly defined role and an opportunity to really match up against another team with some physical bigs, guys that like to crash the glass, knowing they would get that opportunity. And that is what this season was. That was the declaration in September, developmental year. And one of these questions is actually really good, and I, I'm looking forward to answering it um, in the mailbag portion of this podcast. So um, it was a developmental weekend. The Pacers won one, lost one. Fans can freak out and be upset about one of those losses to the Pistons. We decided a long time ago we were not going to um, do that and have the um, you know just dismay for any particular loss over the course of the season. It's late enough in the season now, and the Pacers are in a precarious position, which, again, we'll um, explain just a little bit more, that it can be frustrating, but I don't think you should be discouraged by anything that came out of that Pistons weekend. The Pacers are in a position, we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks, that is just very unique to them. This is a situation where you know, maybe an Orlando or a Detroit has been in a lot, uh, but from our perspective – even the year a couple of years ago when the Pacers were in the play-in tournament, it was pretty obvious that the Pacers were going to be in the play-in tournament. It was just which seeding spot would you get in there. The Pacers ended up ninth. If you remember, they beat Charlotte in the first game and then lost to Washington in the second game, which was the uh, de facto play-in game, which then determined the eighth seed. Uh, last year's team, by this point, we were starting to turn our attention to the draft, and and the year was so different. The Pacers had only recently made the trade for Halliburton, so there was a lot of uh, intrigue about 
not just Halliburton, but Buddy Heald and really that group as a whole. This is a, a unique circumstance because I can't really remember the last time the Pacers were in it. You might have to go back to the 29-2010 season, which was, you know, we're, we're closing in on, on 13, 14, 15 years ago uh, from that, the year the Pacers ended up drafting Paul George. As you look at the Detroit series, as you look forward, I don't want to make any predictions because I frankly don't know, and this isn't uh, my platform to start making uh, prognostications or judgments on what the team is going to do. But the words you hear out of Rick Carlisle's mouth, probably uh, you hear an and the and uh the most. And then the fourth maybe most popular word is development. And he's talking about this constantly. And he also made a comment. I think it was after the Detroit game, or it might have been before the first Detroit game, where he said, uh, look, if these guys, I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of, um, if that, if these guys are questionable, we aren't going to risk it. We're going to make sure they get back to healthy. If you're in fourth and you're a half game out of third, are you taking a different approach? Perhaps. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but where the Pacers are in their rebuild, uh, where the Pacers are with their youth, development seems to me to be the most important thing. And what the Pacers did get out of the last weekend was the chance for Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith for the first time in a long time to both get significant playing time. I thought in general uh, both did a very good job with it, better in the first than the second for both of those guys, but still valuable playing time. Uh, that's true also of Andrew Nemhard. You think of how much Andrew Nemhard has played this year, uh, but really as the lead point guard, it hasn't been anywhere near as much. He had the great first couple of games when Halliburton was out, maybe struggled a little bit in that middle stretch where Halliburton missed seven or eight games in a row, uh, but then has played, I thought, really well these last two games in Detroit. I bring all this up. One of the questions we'll just start with it is, is there any consideration to resting Tyrese, Miles, Ben? We've kind of answered this in a couple of different ways so far, so we don't need to bring it back up. Um, but I think the development of where this team is is their primary goal. I think they're not going to push a player who might be dealing with an injury in the way that you might push a player if this were the playoffs or if you were a game out of or a half game out of sixth or a half game out of first. I just think you have to have a bigger picture in mind. What that all means uh, for the final stretch of schedule, I don't know. The timing of this podcast is a little poor. It's when we have to do it uh, because you will be then on the plane right after this. But there is a practice uh, in which you know we'll be able to sit in on and listen in on interviews and we might know more to that question here in an hour uh, but as of right now I think I think you look at the development dynamic of this as the most important aspect of what the Pacers are looking at. David Flower sent that question in, and in my my answer would be yes because everything is under consideration at this point and I don't mean to be vague or or flippant I think it's a valid point it's something that offline <laughs> you can be you can know that that Pat and I and uh, our text chain with Kristen Air we wonder some of the same things at this point in the season because We've been around for a long time. We've seen the standings. You know at, at a certain point how difficult it is to get to a certain spot. And I can say what Rick Carlisle said, absolutely. If someone is, is dinged up or not 100% and there is any risk of further injury, that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. If it's just a pain-tolerant situation, then I suppose it could come um, from the player. However, I do think that it's incumbent upon the the franchise to 
you know, save the player from themselves at this point and allow them to see the bigger picture. And if there is a situation, let's say a week from now, where you are a little farther out from what, you know, playoff or play-in goals might be, I think you absolutely could make that decision or maybe um, switch things up and, and have one with a nagging injury out one game and maybe another one out another game. But I, those are conversations we're not a part of, but you can bet or you can guarantee there are, those are conversations that will take place, um, a mutual decision with player, with trainers, and with coaching staff and front office as well. And so um, we don't know right now. We could be completely in an hour during post-practice media availability get a different story. So take that for what it is. But um, I, I still think this week those guys were trending towards um, coming back and only missing the Pistons series, and we'll see what happens um, moving forward. And, and there's one that's – that maybe fits into this, and I just want to get this one out of the way um, as a tie-in, and it's Jose Gonzalez. And I I respect where this is coming from, and I do understand the perspective, especially when the messaging from September and October about a rebuilding year, a new era, sort of setting a culture. It said, why do the Pacers keep Buddy Heald, McConnell, and other vets adding meaningless wins to a team that is rebuilding question mark. Mike, I wish I could have an actual back and forth with Jose because this is what I would say. Do you want to be rebuilding forever? Do you do you want to try next year? Well, what players do you want to have that are veterans that will help you win next year? And just because uh, this I'm repeating what Rick Carlisle said and I I said a a similar little diatribe I think on last week's podcast, but Development is not just about allowing a player to go out and play 30 minutes and try to score as many points as he can without any concept of anything else. You have to learn how to play the right way and win the right way. And I'm not going to mention any franchises specifically, but you can look at teams that have been near the bottom of the standings, near the top of the lottery for the last five seasons. Maybe it's worked out that they've strung together three, four lottery picks, but at some point you have to learn how to play basketball in the NBA. It's not the same as college. It's not the same as high school. And veterans help you do that. Um, We have another question coming up that we'll go in greater detail about team chemistry. Do you think your team chemistry would have been as good and as much as people have enjoyed watching this team all season if all you had uh, was 19 to 23-year-old players and they were getting their brains beat in every game? Absolutely not. So resetting the culture and the chemistry was vital to this season, not just um, whether it's this fan who wants to make sure you have a high lottery pick or, you know, why are you trying to get wins? Why do you have these veteran players? There are so many valuable reasons to have the guys mentioned in this tweet and ones that were not mentioned on your roster. Um, So I I can't push back. I, I would push back. I can't buy into this concept that, no veteran has a place on a team that is in a, in the early stages of a rebuild. Jose has been a part of Pacers Twitter for a long time. I've seen him in my timeline for a long time. I certainly appreciate him. Uh, Jose Gone Baller is now, I think it used to be, uh, Jose Gone Pacer. I think I think this question is just it's it's a little bit nearsighted in that. It's, it's a little too video gamey of a question. And you touched on a lot of those reasons. It's you just uh, trade away every good veteran you have and have only young guys, and then you draft at the top, and then you draft high for a while, and then you eventually become the Golden State Warriors or something. That works in a video game. <clears throat> it rarely works in real life. You need the type of players that are going to teach 
the young players, how to be professionals. And if you don't, you get yourself caught in kind of a, a dangerous pattern, which is you draft these talented guys, but they maybe don't have anybody to learn from. And then because of that, you struggle to develop these talented guys. And then because of that, these young guys that you're drafting maybe don't become the type of players that you think you they can when you're drafting them because they don't have a ton to learn from. So I, I think that's important to note. I think another point that I want to make here is, is yes, your point is, is very good. At, at some point, you want to be contending, and, and hopefully that's as early as next year. If you draft right and if you do free agency right, maybe that's as early as next year. Maybe you're talking two years down the line, I think, is maybe the season that you pinpointed a month ago on this podcast. And when you get there, like there's no doubt in my mind, if, if Buddy Heald's still a part of this roster in two years from now, that you think all of a sudden the guy is, is going to fall off the face of the earth with his shooting ability? I mean, he's, he's, he's not 34. He's somebody that could be very helpful – uh, once you hopefully get to that point. And, you know, TJ McConnell along those same lines. The other final point I have on this, and this is just kind of a, a guesstimate for me. It's it's kind of unfounded, but it's something that I genuinely believe. I think if the Pacers were offered, you know, some sort of haul of picks or young talent, that they would have strongly considered that. I think they have to strongly consider everything at the trade deadline. But if you look at the movement that happened – I think a better example of the version of this question might come from a Pistons fan. Why did the Pistons not get something for Boyan Bogdanovich? Well, I think the market for shooters that make 15 to 20, 21, 22, I just don't think that market was there. I think you had a lot of teams that were tapped of their resources. The Lakers are the most dramatic example. But, like, there's a lot of teams in their position. The Trailblazers are in that spot. The Clippers are in that spot. Dallas is in that spot. Uh, Atlanta is in that spot where they are like out of room. And could those teams have used Buddy Heald or Boyan Bogdanovich? Yes, but they're out of cap space. They don't have the matching assets to go back that they're willing to give up. And so therefore, those deals can't happen. I would guess the market for a type of player like that was not what the Pacers felt like it needed to be to give that type of player up. And I have no clue uh, what the Pistons situation is, but Boyan in this situation is is a little bit reminiscent to me of Buddy Heald, except Boyan's a couple years older and is having a great year and is somebody where a team like the Pistons, who have either the worst or the second worst record, depending on the day you check the standings, could have maybe flipped for something real valuable. To me, the fact that they didn't flip Boyan for something of significance tells me what that market was. Exactly. Uh, you know, whether you could trade one of these players, you have to value what they give your organization, not just this season, but also in the future. Both of these players mentioned in this tweet are a part of the franchise next season, at least under contract. And so if there's a move to be made, you still could do that, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it, that, yeah, it, you that's... can't close the book just because something didn't happen at the start of the season. I think the original, the point of this one was those players are helping you win games, and that's the opposite of what you want. And I can understand that to an extent, but again, that's that's on a chalkboard or a dry erase board, and. I understand it if it's Tristan Thompson last year, the veteran who came in and, and maybe wins because you. Because there game. are veterans that may help you lose games. <laughs> right? <laughs> True. True. <laughs> if if a guy that you know is not going to be part of your long-term, even your mid-term future, you don't really value him all that much, but he's helping you win games, I understand the argument there. Uh, I think it's different with Heald, with McConnell. All right, and we'll knock out the final somewhat delicate question, tweet, maybe 
difficult for us to answer, and then we'll move to some lighthearted, fun ones. We appreciate this was a little bit short notice, but we got probably eight or ten quality mailbag requests. So I'll go back to you and let you uh, respond to Big Glenn, ah. one of our favorite uh, Pacers and Fever fans. Um, I actually heard on JMV last week he called in and won concert tickets. So, I mean, he's all over the place. He is a diehard Pacer fan, a diehard Fever fan. He listens to Pacers Weekly every single Saturday morning. Uh, I wish every fan could be dedicated <laughs> like Big Glenn. But it's people like Big Glenn that, A, allow us to have these jobs and, B, make them as enjoyable as we do. And and all of you, like, I made the point, like, Jose, he's always on Pacers Twitter. I don't mean – no, nothing against Jose. I respect the question, and Alex I hope I didn't offend you I mean, on the answer. There's a lot of people that fall into this category. I just have an affinity for Big Glenn, especially because of how passionate he is about the fever, fever as well. exactly. And as you know, that's a big part of what I do. But continue. Big Glenn says, would you rather see us make the play-in or make the lottery, question mark, especially borderline teetering either way? Hashtag sideline, guys. we got to get that one, that hashtag trending. So, Pat, you can answer this one first. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I threw a couple tough ones your way. Um, here, here's what I'll say about that. I, I don't have a definitive answer for, on this, and I know that's probably going to sound like I am dodging the question, and maybe to a degree I am a little bit. But I, I don't have a necessarily like a hard consensus on this because if we, if, if, if we watch the Pacers down the stretch, if you watch Tyrese Halliburton, and if you watch. Well, hopefully Benedict Matherin. Now, maybe this starts to change a little bit if injuries creep in and avoid guys like Matherin and some of your young talent to be able to play. I will never complain about the Pacers making the play-in tournament if it's because guys like Tyrese and Ben and Isaiah and Jalen and Andrew Nemhard, like if that group is playing extraordinarily well if it's beating these contending teams down the stretch and that's a play-in does it drop you a couple of draft picks yeah could that make a difference potentially I mean it's it's, it's easy to see the extremes of say getting Matherin or Johnny Davis but look at the, at the same point and this is something that I need to remind myself of sometimes oftentimes the Pacers know this well Reggie Miller Miles Turner Paul George 10 through 12 there uh, so it's it's not like it's not like that ten through twelve spot you can't get good talent. Some of the best NBA players in the history of this franchise have come in that gap. Um, but if you if you pick a couple spots back because your young players that you hope are going to be carrying this franchise one day are taking leaps and bounds, like ultimately that's what you want. I think if it were some sort of scenario where it's hard to imagine this happening, but like if. If Tyrese wasn't playing all that well, and maybe some of the younger guys weren't playing all that well, but uh, you know the the veterans or so carried this team to the play, and then then you might wonder what's the best case scenario. There's also the third level of this question, which is, are you making the playoffs out of the play-in or not? Which then kind of changes the lottery. And, and as you know, the lottery situation, the odds have been uh, leveled that the playing field has been greatly even. So the difference between like being in the lottery from six seven eight or nine is the difference between those picks is much less significant than it used to be so uh a little bit of a roundabout way of answering that but i think as long as you're seeing the type of growth development success out of the young guys then i i think there's reason enough to be happy about the positives of that 
potentially outweighing the negatives of losing a couple spots in the draft. Not a surprise there are layers to my answer. And you mentioned some previous seasons of having a high pick. And I'm going to reference two seasons that I've been in this position and say I'm somewhere sort of between the two. The 2014-15 season, the season that Paul George uh, broke his leg, came back, played at the very end, and there was an opportunity on the last night of the year to win a game against the Grizzlies to get into the playoffs. It wasn't a fantastic year, but it was my first year in the job, and I was all in, 100%. Now, there's no, there was no play-in at that point. Right. So at you had to get to eight, and if you got to eight, you were guaranteeing yourself two weeks of work, a playoff series. That's what you play for, for a team that was coming off of an Eastern Conference Finals appearance, and you thought, Maybe anything is possible with some of the veterans and, while not a 100% Paul George, a better Paul George or a healthy Paul George. Did not happen. Uh, was kind of in mourning for a couple of days. But the fact that the Pacers got a lottery pick didn't soothe any of my pain. However, I can remember having a conversation early in that next season or maybe midway through the next season with Chris Denary, and he said, well, maybe it was a blessing that you didn't make the playoffs because you got Miles Turner. <laughs> and yep. look who's still here. Right. Now, the other season I'll mention, 2020-21 season. Um, a season I may as well just forget that it even happened. <laughs> Many probably already have, but the Pacers were in the play-in game, the play-in tournament, and won one game and, and were one win away, again, from extra work for us on a personal, selfish, perhaps, perspective. Playoff appearance, although... Uh, no fans were really or limited fans at that point. I'm not even 100% certain at that point what the, the capacity rules were going to be for the playoffs. Um, did not make it and did not get a high lottery pick. I think they picked 13th. They got Chris Duarte. We like Chris Duarte. Um, could they have picked a little higher? Sure, if you didn't win some of those games. But it also didn't feel like it was a season that was kind of going anywhere, and I wasn't incredibly sad when it ended. This is a little bit different because I've really enjoyed this season. Yeah. And if you ask me, I'd like to be working until the end of May. I'm not going to be ready for, quote, unquote, my summer vacation. I don't have the fever um, like you do to, to go to. Um, so perhaps um, if you have something else, that's fine. But I would just assume be around this team, cover games, see playoff atmospheres. But I'm also a realist in that th that wasn't really the expectation for this season and so um it's hard to say i don't my son here's one other thing that to, to keep in mind you are creating new fans this season and there's no better way to energize a young fan than to see a playoff game or a play a postseason game let's say at gamebridge Fieldhouse. so my son texted me a couple of weeks ago we've been having some of this similar discussion in our car rides about what's best for the team but he did say a couple of weeks ago, I want to see a gold-out game at Gamebridge Fieldhouse this season. And I think that would be a lot of fun. But to do that, you can't just get in at 10. You have to at least be 9, right? And I think that would be a tremendous step for the organization. It would be a great atmosphere. I would love on a Tuesday or Wednesday, April what 10th, 11th, or 12th, to see a game at Gamebridge Fieldhouse with postseason winner-go-home implications. And then maybe see what happens in the following game. But – at the end of the day, what's better for the organization if you would win that and then lose the next and pick 12th or 13th or maybe have a shot at a generational talent that you have a tough time getting? I can see every side of it, and 
<laughs> I'm not going to answer your question, Glenn, but I appreciate it. And, and the other thing to remember is the difference between like 6'10", the difference there in the, the ping pong balls, it exists, but it's it's only a couple percent. So as you look at maybe you know hitting that grand slam and getting to number one, you're not drastically changing your odds. Now, if you if you were 14 or 15, yes, you, w- you would be out of the lottery and you would be out of that equation. I think a good example of where you can go both ways with this, you started with that 2014-2015 season. It was also my first year in this job. I desperately wanted that team to win that final game in Memphis to keep the role going. It was such an enjoyable back half of the year, maybe not the most enjoyable first half, but also the first year in these jobs, the team could have been winless and and I would have been elated. I think I'm speaking for you too. So they end up 11, right? And they pick Turner and we all know how that goes. You just detailed it. It's just kind of interesting to look at that draft, for example, because had the Pacers made the playoffs, um, they could have been picking probably 15, 16, or 17. Uh, those picks, Kelly Oubre, decent pro. Terry Rozier, pretty good pro. Rashad Vaughn never really made it. Sam Decker never really made it. Jerry and Grant never really made it. So, like, you imagine the franchise's placement if they have one of those guys, which, by the way, a couple quality NBA players in there. I'm not trying to dog that group as a whole. But there's no doubt you'd rather have Miles Turner. And there's no doubt missing – like like you go in hindsight, as, as disappointed as I remember being walking out of that radio studio knowing it was all over that year, there's no doubt in hindsight that it was better for the Pacers that year to have lost that game like they did – and to have Miles Turner, who's still a part of the franchise, than Kelly Oubre. The problem is you, you don't know that in the moment. You don't know what the draft is going to look like at the moment. You don't know how these guys are going to pan out in the moment. And a great example of that is imagine the Pacers that year had been in the situation where they are now, where there may be six or seven or so, but could have gotten to 10, dropped back, if you will, to 10 or 11, or even to 15 or 16. Well, in that 2015 draft, for example, and there's a few that are like this. The sixth pick, Willie Cauley-Stein, right on the borderline of being even in the NBA these days. Uh, by the way, the fifth pick, Mario Hazonia, not in the NBA. Uh, Emmanuel Moutier, Stanley Johnson, Frank Kaminsky. So it can go the other direction, and what I'm trying to say is just because you're six versus ten, some draft classes end up – I think I remember Zach hearing Zach Lowe talk about this, like there's – Sometimes if you look, there's multiple drafts where there's sort of a dead zone between 6 and 10, and he at least floated, a th- I think it was Zach, floated a theory about how 1 through 3, 4, 5, every draft is different, but 1 through 3, 4, 5, like you have your can't misses. And then he thought that maybe sometimes you have teams then in the 6 through 10 range reaching for guys that maybe aren't the 6th, 7th, 8th, or 10th best players, but the guys that have the best potential to become a star or a superstar. And because of that, perhaps sometimes 6 through 9 or 10, a better discussion here for when we're doing a draft preview. But <laughs> We have a lot of time to do that. But sometimes the 6 through 10, he theorized that uh, you got teams that are reaching a little bit because of higher ceilings versus taking the next best player there. And I think that draft class is probably a good example. I remember being really impressed with Miles Turner and being surprised he fell to 11. I think if you're looking at that, you say, you, you remember Emmanuel Moutier, he was at one point the number one pick, and Stanley Johnson, a two-way wing, and Willie Cauley-Stein, the modern type of four. And Miles Turner falls to 11, it benefits the Pacers. All of that to say, all of that to bring it back here to the main point of, is six more valuable than 10? Of course. But that doesn't mean in your given year 
that it's going to be. So if the Pacers end up in the play-in tournament, if the Pacers go on a run here, let's say they make the play-in tournament and they don't make the playoffs, just for one example, that shouldn't necessarily be deemed as some sort of failure. We would need to judge that three, four years down the road. And what I will also will say, maybe what you're able to do if you get in is attract or you know, a free agent or get someone that might be even more interested in playing here. And I'll just add this one quick final thought. Just remember, you've got two likely first-round picks in the 20s. Maybe, let's say, Cleveland's picks 24 or 25, Boston 27, 28, and maybe even a pick at 31 or 2. You can't have all those players on your roster next year. I'm very confident to say the Pacers are not going to draft and at least keep in the United States four players of the first 32 picks. So... Let's say you make the play-in game and don't make the playoffs and you're picking 12th or 13th and you're a fan and you're very frustrated. My message now is the same I'll have in May and June. Just hold on. Let's see what happens. Maybe you trade 25 and 29 and 12 and you get to 8. If there's a player you really like. I know the franchise values this draft and they are very determined to add a very important player that can help them in the future for a long time out of this draft and i think they have the means to go get that player sure it'd be easier if your ping pong ball bounces your way but if it doesn't there also is a plan b in place and you're really rooting for the houston rockets to lose yeah that's another thing that's underrated that people should keep an eye on yeah maybe the most important thing because uh this the difference between not i don't know all of the permutations of how it works but like i think it could be 30, 31, or like even as low as like 59 if it goes to the Celtics? 31 or 32, right? Sorry, 31 or 32, yes. And if it's not 31 or 32, then it drops into the abyss and all of these different scenarios. Does it go to next year, though? It might. or But I I still don't think it has the chance to be. I mean, 31 or 32 is the absolute best-case scenario for that pick. And remember, the Pacers have the Cavs pick, but – uh, that's something certainly to watch. Where he, I mean, if you are rooting for anything, undoubtedly you're rooting for Houston to lose. And I think uh, last night the Spurs got another win, which is good. You're also rooting for San Antonio to win and Detroit this, to win. Uh, Detroit to win. So and, that's a little less pain off what happened yes, on Monday night. And San Antonio to win too, because that keeps Houston from ultimately passing them. Jumping. Yeah. yeah. So a uh, final final point. At some point. You've got Tyrese Halliburton under pretty good team control for a while. But at some point, you're going to need him to re-sign here long-term. And this maybe goes back to the Jose question more than the Big Glenn question. Uh, But at some point, you're going to have to convince Tyrese Halliburton to extend a contract for four or five more years. And if, if you're just always at 20 and 62, maybe that's a little tougher than... If he knows he's got Buddy Heald here, who's a good player, who's a friend of his, that once you get this thing turned around, you've instantly got an impact vet. Just a final piece of food for thought. Yeah, all of those are good answers. And I hope, I mean, I'm not saying we're going to convince someone who has this strong opinion, one direction about this. We're on this podcast, I think, allowing you to see all sides and kind of like – the way I view a lot of things, somewhere in the middle. So uh, it could go either direction, but it's never as bad as it seems, and it's probably never as good as it seems. We have probably 15 more minutes. Let's just bounce around some of these more lighthearted questions that came in on my Twitter request. And so uh, just kind of quick thoughts from from these. How about Zachary Barnett? I know he's also been 
someone who has uh, tweeted quite a bit. I think he's taken my tickets to a game or two at some point in time. Who is the pacer who would be the most fun at a party? Oh, now, we should, probably should clarify. I mean, technically, Mark Boyle's a pacer. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, uh, you, if you want to drink bourbon until 5 a.m., Mark is your If choice. you get him talking, yeah. he is a lot of fun. Um, but sometimes maybe it takes a little time to get it's, through the bubble. It's a, it, it depends on what like, I don't know if Zach Barnett, if he sat down next to him at the bar. I, I mean, not that he wouldn't talk to him. But if they got the, if they got the yeah. conversation going... I think some of our fans might enjoy that as much as anything. I don't want to hijack this, but it depends on what you mean by fun. Because <laughs> if if sitting there and drinking bourbon until you realize that this man in his 60s is going to be able to drink you under the table and you have no shot, and I'm speaking of myself at 24 years old uh, early on when I tried to do that, uh, then Boyle has fantastic stories. He's a incredibly interesting person, and I've not met anybody, at least that I've come into regular contact with, that has stories from around the NBA like Mark Boyle has. So if that is what you mean by fun, and Boyle counts in Pacers, if, if that's what you're looking for, he'd be great at that. From the player's perspective, like when I read this, I'm thinking like, who's the life of the party? Who's the guy maybe jumping on stage, perhaps grabbing the microphone if that exists, getting on the dance floor? Uh, there might be a better answer to this, but I just my brain can't stop from going past Buddy Heald. That's my vote as well. Yeah, I mean, you think about the parties probably in the Bahamas. And, <laughs> right. and also right. what he told us in our podcast about he was sort of the ringleader Early in the season, he was starting the group text, hey, let's meet here, let's do this. Uh, he just seems like a, a guy that never has a bad day. Now, we see him, if things are not going well during the game, I mean, I guess he's having has maybe bad moments, but I think he can quickly bounce back from those, and I just think... But at a party, uh, things rarely go wrong, right? So, yeah, he's set up I, yeah, in a good direction. I could just see him there with a, a Mai Tai or a, <laughs> I don't know, what I should ask him what his drink of preference would be. Smile on his face. Yeah. Welcome. To, is there a basketball? I mean, if nearby? the party's at his house, at his gym, then you know it'd be a fun time as well. You've got a great venue. Buddy's my answer. Can I give you a a sneaky dark horse pick for this? Sure. James Johnson. Yeah, that was actually the first name that came to mind because I have, um, I have been around him. It seems like he's sort of in the center of things, whether it's on the plane or in the hotel. Like he's kind of, he's a little bit of the the ringleader type of guy as well, and so um, he also would would have some of that. NBA storytelling perspective that we mentioned with Mark Boyle, that would be fun. I want to paint a mental image in everybody's heads because it was one of the most fantastic things I've ever seen. And I will give Wes Kaminsky credit for alerting me to this. A week ago today, we had the season ticket holder party. So the players basically, uh, first of all, allow me to use this as a quick soapbox. If you've ever considered season tickets, one of the biggest benefits to it besides getting the lowest price per ticket is you get to go to the season ticket holder party at the end of the year and it's free food and it's free drink. And the players all show up. And you get to interact. Some it depend. The, the theme is different every year, but you might get to play pool. You might get to shoot hoops with a Pacers player. You genuinely get to interact, get autographs, all that type of stuff. Wes Kaminsky, Pacers PR aficionado, taps me on the shoulder and points my direction to the right. And I look over, and it's James Johnson at a poker table with six other people, median age 74, and is just having the time of his life playing poker with these people and it I, I hope the mental image i'm able to paint it is as good as it was there because the guy was 
genuinely enjoying sitting down and playing some poker with some of our older season ticket holders and that's that's one of those season ticket holder memories that will always stick with me yeah so i i I think it's fair to say we've got a a a short list of three people mark boyle james johnson and buddy hill that's a good trio to start with and just i think it'd be fun to have those three together rick too like i feel like rick's rick's a little like mark in that stories abound probably even more than mark uh not maybe somebody you'd initially think of as like being the first on the dance floor, but uh, is is sneaky funny. They both have dry sense of humors. I'll I'll toss Rick in there. Okay. I'll maybe make it a top four. All right. And uh, if you're near a piano, let's yeah, just yeah. say, and I've heard that in an off night, and uh, it's fantastic. He is quite a talent. Alex Golden setting the pace. Shout out to he and Fachi for their great work in podcasting all season long and off season. Always can count on Alex as well to chime in when we ask for a mailbox question. We always see Kristen Airy rock his Wabash Championship ring. I don't think it's an everyday or game thing. I was actually having this discussion with our producer and Emmis and Mark on Talkback, Boyle, Eddie Garrison. I saw it for a game, and I said, is, is that on for every game? Like, I know when he comes to practice, it's not always there. But the fact that, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe just I just smart. don't have attention I'll have to detail. to find out. Yeah. Um, but – Alex is curious if there is something that we both wear on the regular. I mean, I'm not blessed to have a championship ring. No. I did earn a Ball State class ring that was actually a, an award for being a four-year letter winner as Charlie Cardinal. And I, for about, uh, you know, three or four years after college, I wore it, and I'd get a lot of questions. Oh, you played football. Yeah, well, I technically earned the ring from my mascot work, and then I kind of just put it away. I, so I don't have anything that I can think of other than the wedding ring. Yeah, and and I'll go into that in a moment. Okay. <laughs> I um maybe funnier story. I when when I was in college, we had a great opportunity to go cover the Olympics in London. It was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And there was a media day in Dallas uh, before everybody went to London, where you could meet the athletes, do interviews, and stuff like that. And they had the official USA um, Olympic T-shirt that they gave to all the media members, not the one that you could like go buy on Nike.com. Like for some reason, it was the athletes, probably their coaches, and then us media members. I'm 21, maybe. Uh, like you taller than the average person you would never confuse you were an athlete you would never confuse me for an athlete now I'll beat you I'll beat your you know what in horse any day but beyond that I'm not an athlete and you would never confuse me for an athlete but because I'm tall and sometimes this every once in a while if I'm wearing Pacers gear it happens more at the reading timeouts when there's like a six-year-old he's like do you play for the Pacers you're so tall no no trust me if you saw me when I walk off the bus the autograph seekers at the hotel never ask for my autograph so I don't I must look like you and they wouldn't for me either but I was wearing this Team USA Olympic shirt on an airplane once and the flight attendant was so convinced I was an Olympian and she would not let me tell her no Oh, I wasn't an Olympian. I'm more like 25, 26 at this time, so I maybe look even more so. But uh, anyway, that that your point there with the, the Charlie Cardinal ring got me thinking. So of that. you wear that shirt everywhere now? No, now I okay. don't wear it because <laughs> okay. I I don't like even. Then I'm going. Do I look like a phony like wannabe Olympic athlete if I wear this? And plus, the shirts. There's a limited amount old. of things, Alex. You can wear every day, yeah. so this would be tough outside of like I said, wedding ring and. Um, you know, I, we all have our certain clothes that somehow you wash them and they're at the top of the pile of the, <laughs> you just seem like you wear that one. Like I've got a million shirts, but 
Yeah, it's only like, the top looks like five shirts. <laughs> yeah, and you but, wonder like, do the shirts below five? Do I try to mix it up more with the the suits and the wardrobe. Yeah, I'm really cognizant of that. But the the off day, like these pants that I'm wearing now, probably get worn four days a week. <laughs> I actually am wearing this pullover today because I actually cognizantly had the thought: I don't wear this much, and I need to stop. You know going what? We're to, in sync. We're actually wearing the same too. This doesn't work great for an audio podcast. <laughs> it is the... And uh, I never wear this one either. It is the gray Nike, probably four or five years old, quarter zip, Pacers logo on uh, the left front shoulder. I will say this. Uh, I, do, I, I don't like having jewelry on. I never have. I've never worn necklaces. I've never worn rings. I've never worn bracelets. When it, like I was of the age of kid where it was really popular to have like 46 bracelets on your wrist that said all these different things and all my friends had them and I just couldn't stand them. I'm a little OCD in that way. So I was actually a little nervous when I got married in September just before the season. Like I don't know that I'm going to like the ring. And so I told my now wife, I'm like, please don't spend a lot on the ring. And please do not get offended if I don't wear the ring. And I don't wear the ring. and But I have found, and this is, I think, a handful of married people, not a handful, a good portion of married people do the same thing. Chris Denary, I see with his version of this all the time. There are the rubber rings that are like, I think, it, I think really made for like working out and stuff like that or if you're doing physical activity. But I put it on and all of a sudden I couldn't feel it. I'm like, this is it for me when I wear. So if we go to a nicer event, uh, for example, there's an event at the Fieldhouse tonight, a charity dinner that I'm going to, and I will put on the actual ring. I think because Alexa, my wife, uh, would appreciate that I wear them to nicer Seems events. Seems like it's just too easy to lose if you're not wearing it all I don't the time. even know where it is. <laughs> I, I hope she does. She's sort of um, – the keeper of that ring, but since I found this light rubber one, I don't even notice when it's on. So that's been a good balance for me. Uh, along the same lines, but not quite the same. Alicia, my wife, got me one of those health rings. Um, that's oh, probably yeah. way too expensive, but it tracks your heart yeah. and it's kind of like a Fitbit, but it's your ring. But I'm like, I don't really want to wear two rings, and I already have a wedding ring, and I'm not really trying to replace it. And unlike you, I wear the wedding ring, and it never comes off, even if I happen. Uh, to play basketball or do whatever, which is that doesn't happen as much as it should. But I don't know that it's there. In fact, it's even it's difficult for me to take off because my knuckles at some point, I think I got tackled in football and they're a little larger. So, um, yeah, I, I had no interest in the secondary ring. So it got returned. I understand. That. <laughs> but I understand uh, that quickly, we got to rifle through some of these other questions. Um, let's see. OK, here's one. I think this is a public service announcement from a, a diehard fan, but also back to him. Um, not so fly over Zach. Uh, diehard fan. In fact, I retweeted one of his reactions to uh, oh, I the know Tyrese who, who Halliburton yeah. buzzer beater. And he got the tattoo, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, he is one of the most dedicated Pacers fans there are. We could probably do a podcast with him at some point in the summer. Um, how many wins will it take in one season for Pacers fans to feel empowered enough to actually stand up and cheer <laughs> for the team in a close game? Never matters how close the game is. In the fourth with a minute left, if lucky, you might get a fourth of the field house up. Um, and, in fact, he's used my seats one time and expressed frustration that someone behind him was – was mad that he was standing up um and i would say there are all different kinds of fans and if there's a fan who doesn't want to stand it's okay but i also hope that the fan that's watching the game respects the passion of the fan that does stand so the, i get what he's saying let's hope if it is 
you know, two minutes left. I have no problem. I've been a fan plenty of times in my life. And sometimes you just know when the time is right, it's stand-up time. Um, some arenas, um, actually Michael Grady fashion this never never uh nobody sits for the nobody tip sits or, for yeah. the tip i don't know that it i don't know that that happens anymore yeah i'm not sure it does but um shout out to zach i understand maybe some frustration let's just hope if there is criticism no if you're all fans you can't be too mad at one fan for showing more passion than another and i can i guess i can get it if someone's you want to see everyone else stand up and you're not As maybe we need to get the the scoreboard to say stand up that's time. not a bad idea. Or maybe it's like free throw stand up uh, well, for we the other are, team. We are sharing a wall with the uh, scoreboard control room right now. <laughs> so maybe you and I can just hack in here and yeah. and put that up. As a tall person, I'm always cognizant of the person behind me because I don't want to make their experience poor just because um, for some reason I am taller than the average person. Uh, but I do think like it, there's, there's a, a middle ground here. Like it, if it's the second quarter – maybe allow the fans around you to have uh, a good experience. If you're at a game and it's close and it's in the final two minutes, like all bets are off. You can't complain then. And I know that's not really the point about complaining about standing or sitting. Um, I will say this. I guess that's something I maybe don't notice as much. Maybe some of it's like the angle, like you don't get it from a side view. So the fans, I guess maybe I wouldn't have been able to tell you if this is accurate, that it is accurate. But I will say one thing you get a great perspective of being down on the floor is, and maybe you don't, depending on if you're a little bit higher up, like if, if you're in the balcony, you maybe don't hear all of the cheering and the yelling that comes down at the floor level. In close games this year, and maybe not as much in the past couple of years with COVID and the team not being quite as good, not having as many close games, like you, I will say you feel the fourth quarter close game moments. I, are the fans standing? I couldn't tell you, to be honest, but the home court advantage is there. We have time for two more questions. They need to be pretty quick so we can make it to the end of post-practice media availability. Ryan Rucker, the camaraderie between the players and staff this year seems to be great. Who or what would you contribute that to? I referenced this tweet with the question about the veterans, but it's not a uh, quote-unquote veteran that is the reason I'm going to point to one player specifically as the person that uh, I think Rick Carlisle has called the Pied Piper. He's brought everyone together. He's brought the staff together. He's brought uh, the fan base together. And I think it's Tyrese Halliburton. And I worried a little bit at the start of this season, the expectations were too high. Maybe the responsibility, the, the team, the media putting a little bit too much on his plate. He's been able to handle it and, and then some. And I think that, uh, you have to win some games or you're not going to have great camaraderie. It's just a fact. You wouldn't want everyone to be super happy in a 10-game losing streak. So they won enough games early. It was a first half that exceeded all expectations. And the joy that he plays with, it is infectious. A lot of credit goes to guys like James Johnson and those that are on the bench not playing in what they've done to boost the morale of those maybe – there's a veteran that's not playing. He's maybe okay with it. There's a young player. If he's not in the rotation, maybe he's frustrated. Guys like James Johnson have helped make that situation better. But the number one reason for the camaraderie we've seen, I think, is Tyrese Halliburton. Totally agree. And the only other thing I'll add is that the Pacers, I think, have a really good mix of different personalities in the locker room. I think they've had challenges in previous seasons 
where you have a lot of really good guys. So maybe the camaraderie is decent, but a lot of the more like soft-spoken, quieter, go get your job done. You need a lot of those guys, but you need a little bit of everything. And Tyrese Halliburton is the guy that brings it all together. You've got uh, somebody like TJ McConnell, who's so easy to get along with. You've got Benedict Matherin, who's maybe a little bit more intense. You've got James Johnson and now George Hill, who are locker room leaders. You've got Buddy Hill, uh, Buddy Heald, who's more on the goofy side of things. And I think you need all those different types of personality to have that be the case. Final question from one of our favorites, but I'm not going to say my favorite. Scott Pollard asks, who is your favorite former player, and what about Scott Pollard gives him that <laughs> distinction? Good question. I mean, I love you, Scott. I'm going to go back to my my childhood, Scott Pollard's playing days with the Pacers, um, kind of early professional days for me. And so I was starting to come to grips with that point of, well, I, I can't be as much of a fan because I might go into locker rooms eventually. And I did get the opportunity to work alongside Scott. So I, I really enjoyed those interactions. I enjoy when I get to see him now. And uh, I also loved his personality. So he's on the list. But I'm going to go back to maybe um, – my early days at Market Square Arena and Detlef Schrempf, even though he wasn't the best player on that team, I had a Detlef Schrempf, one of those uh, caricature T-shirts with the big head and the smaller body, and I wore that three or four days a week. And I can remember kind of the joy of going to Market Square Arena. And, and his days weren't quite to the Reggie Miller days. They weren't winning as much, but he was my first favorite pacer. And there was a game maybe four or five years ago that he was in town and he was signing autographs, and he, he, he's, a, he's a part of a number of initiatives. And I think, uh, if I could be wrong on this, I think it was about um, renewable energy or taking care of the environment, and he was speaking on behalf of that, and he had a table out to sign autographs, and my parents happened to be at the game. And, you know, with a credential, I could have gotten away with getting in line and getting the autograph, but in general – autographs are not part of the media it, it's a no-no and if you're a fan listening if right. you ever want to ask me to get so-and-so an autograph it's just I I can't do it it's it, you don't want to cross that line and um but I did think it would have been cool to hey dad can you get in line and get me a little uh Detlef shrimp and it was an autographed mini basketball so so I got that and he's I'll put him at the top of my list I will say this I wish Scott Pollard was here playing here longer because when you think of I think just the general feeling about the Davis brothers, for example. Like, I think that was – Scott's a very unique uh, person on and off the floor, but I think that, like, kick-butt, take-names attitude, uh, maybe, like, throw Jeff Foster into here too. I think I think if Scott played here longer he, – he's really beloved in Sacramento. Like, I think that would be the case here had he spent uh, more time here. Also, uh, a but fan – Shout-out that he still lives here. Of Scott, yeah. You know, like he here. and Eddie Gill, a couple of guys from – those uh, early 2000s, uh, I appreciate that they've made Central Indiana their home. I really wish I could have some sort of trendy or cool pick like you did. I grew up, I was born in 1990. It's Reggie Miller. I fell in love with the Pacers because of Reggie Miller. I don't need to sit here and explain to you why Reggie Miller is great and why I fell in love with him. I think anybody, especially in my age range, knows. I, I got to grow up with Reggie Miller and Peyton Manning. I was such a spoiled kid with the local athletes in the city and I know we touched on this last week but how cool was it to see Reggie Miller come back for David Benner's memorial service the message that he had I'm like you he is on that short list and there are not too many people now that I've had a chance to interact and talk with a lot of people I've I've not done an actual interview with Reggie Miller probably since his the the year that he retired and 
I remember he was calling games for Butler in one of the, I think, the Sweet 16 at Salt Lake City, if memory serves. And I wanted to do an interview with him, but it's also like you're working for a Fox affiliate and he's there on behalf of CBS. There is a little bit of a, you know, conflict there. Um, but I'm still kind of nervous when I'm, I'm close to him around him. And that that's a respect thing. That's a, a fan and an idol sort of thing. And I, I still felt that way even last Wednesday when he was in the building. Um, and I, I so appreciated hearing his message that day. Thank you for all the questions. We always appreciate them. Maybe we'll get one or two more of these mailbags in and some off-season editions of the podcast, or maybe even, who knows, one more before the end of the year. Uh, March 18th is the lone home game, kind of surrounded by a ton of road games right now. Pacers.com slash tickets. Philadelphia 76ers are here. The previous game was really entertaining. And then the Pacers close out with a bunch of home games. Again, Pacers.com slash tickets. We would love to see you at least one final time before the season comes to a close. For this week's podcast, for Jeremiah Johnson, I'm Pat Boylan, and we will talk to you next week on the Sideline Guys, powered by GameBridge.